You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of his word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Good morning, The Field Church, and welcome to our online service. We pray that you are well and that God is sustaining you. And we pray that he's giving you great hope in his future grace, especially during these confusing days. There can be a lot to be confused about, and we understand that. Confusion about what life will look like next year as we attempt to reestablish new and normal patterns of life, and yet consider health and safety? What will school look like for my children? What will church gatherings look like? How can I begin to participate in normal society? What will winter bring regarding the resurfacing of the virus? Is the vaccine an answer? Can I touch and can I hug my friends? We understand all of this confusion. There's not only confusion about the virus, but there's also confusion about how to effect change and peace among each other in light of the recent tragedies, namely the death of George Floyd. There's confusion about how to care for those who are grieving over and directly affected by this tragedy. Confusion about how to use our voices and our acts of service to bring about love and unity and reconciliation, and healing, and how to effectively proclaim our message, the ultimate answer. We know that the ultimate answer is that we need people's hearts to change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need hearts to be transformed and come alive, which this only comes through the transformative work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to take a moment, just by the way of love, we want you to know that we are praying for this situation. We're having conversations and praying for the beloved minorities, especially African-Americans, as, we, as well as praying for law enforcement in America who also need our love and our support and our prayers as they seek to serve and protect while also praying for the city of Minneapolis and the friends and the family affected by the death of George Floyd, we also pray for the peaceful voices to rise up among the aggressive rioting in Minneapolis. And actually, in light of this, I wanna pause right now and do something special. I wanna ask you to pull out your phones and I want you to send a text message to Caroline and Connor Kennedy. Caroline and Connor are a dear brother and sister who we sent out, and they've gone to Minneapolis to go to seminary in preparation for overseas missions and to train indigenous pastors. And we would like you to take a moment and send them a text, whether you know them or not, it's okay. And tell them that you're praying for them as they navigate safety and ministry and ministering to others with the gospel 
during this time of living in downtown Minneapolis. And then commit them to prayer uh, even after this service. And, uh, and so I wanna pause for just a moment with their phone numbers on the screen. And I would like you to do this right now. Take a moment and send them a text telling them that you're praying for them, for their safety, and for their ministry during this time. Thank you for doing that. I know that they can use your prayers. So we understand that this time is a time that many of us are confused. And we want to encourage you that one of the most effective things that you can do when you don't know what to do is pray. Pray for the gospel to transform individual hearts. That's what the prayer should be. Our hearts are the problem. What we know from the scripture is that our problems are not the problem. Our hearts are the problem. That's why I can go to Florida last week for a family vacation. And even though I desired and experienced good rest and reset, I still experienced and was frustrated by my same problems. Because my sins and my habits and my tendencies and my pride and my unloving ways of responding to my family are in my heart. My heart is the problem, and I need God to transform my heart. The problems are where we see the fruit. Our hearts are where we find the root. And so the gospel will transform individual hearts, which will bring about God's kingdom, God's loving and diverse kingdom here to earth. So in many areas, including these two, there are many things to be confused about. What will I do with my business? How do I talk with my kids about all of this? How can I utilize this time for spiritual growth? And the list goes on. But today, Luke actually wants us to see that there is one thing that we don't have to be confused about. One thing that we can be sure of, and that's the identity of Jesus Christ the identity of Jesus Christ. We can be sure that Jesus Christ is God and that he has come to save sinners. This is what we can be sure of. This is one thing we can take heart in. This is one thing that we can embrace that brings about stability and peace and hope and most importantly, salvation. This is one thing that can be the bedrock of our lives, the foundation of our joy, and the sure thing that we can believe and hold on to for all of eternity. That's that Jesus Christ is God and that he has come to save sinners. And that's what Luke wants to make explicitly clear today. That's what we simply come to today in our passage. As we journey through Luke, that's Luke's main point today with just a clear and definitive statement in the most explicit way that we have seen up until this point in Luke's gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So I've titled this message, The Christ of God. The Christ of God. Because in this section, Luke's main point is to make explicitly clear that at this point in Luke's gospel, it has been thoroughly established through Jesus' first phase of his ministry, which mainly took place in Galilee, that Jesus Christ has established that he is the Christ of God. God. That's what he is called and that is who he is. And we can be sure of this conclusion based upon what we have seen to this point. He will very soon be headed to Jerusalem to complete his final messianic work, which will include his final rejection and his death. But at this point, we can conclude, as the apostles did, that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ of God. He is the Christ of God. We are able to come to that conclusion definitively. So a couple of things will become clear as we make our way uh, towards this point and, and on this journey to see this truth in this passage. First, what will become clear is that in many ways, this is a continuation of the main point of the past couple of sermons. The past couple of sermons in Luke, if you remember, have illustrated the point that Jesus has been heard about, but not embraced as Messiah. So as we are looking at this text and making our way to the main point, which that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the Christ of God, we are going to first encounter and be reminded of what we have seen for the past couple of weeks, that by the large multitudes and the crowds, Jesus is not embraced as the Christ of God. The sermon preached a few weeks ago showed us that Jesus was heard about by many, but not embraced as Messiah. And then last week, Pastor Josh continued that in showing us that Jesus showed general grace by providing a miraculous meal to those who, again, have heard about Jesus, but have not embraced him as Messiah. And so too, this will be a continuation when we see what the crowds and the multitudes are saying about Jesus. But here, one of the uh, elements that Luke wants to make clear is that this is what the multitudes and the crowds are believing. But here he says it very explicitly. We see that in this portion, this will become explicit today. It will become stated clearly that the same conclusion we have seen by and large that the people are hearing about Jesus, but not embracing him as Messiah. We will see this again today, but it's stated explicitly. Luke makes this statement explicitly. And we will notice this continuation of sorts, which tells us we got the main point right in the past couple of sermons. But we will also see another continuation of sorts. And this leads us to the main point of who Jesus actually is, which is the Christ of God. We're going to see a continuation of when even Jesus commissioned the apostles a few weeks ago. We know that he commissioned them because they had believed in him. And what we see made explicitly clear in their case, in the apostles case in this portion of scripture is that they indeed did believe um, as opposed to the crowds the apostles did believe that Jesus is the Messiah he is the Christ of God today we're going to see Peter's confession which as the leader of the apostles he will represent all of the apostles and he will make it explicitly and definitively clear he will state it without any ambiguity that Jesus is 
God's Christ. He will make this clear. They have believed for a while, but now Luke intends for both sides to be exposed explicitly. The crowds have heard, but they do not embrace, while the apostles have heard and they embrace Christ as the Messiah. So we see these two realities, what the many believe, what the apostles believe, and it's made explicitly clear, stated concisely and clearly. And through Peter's confession, that main point becomes clear. Again, that we are establishing here that Jesus is the Christ. Based upon his childhood testimony, based upon his Galilean phase in ministry, which we are, which we are coming to a close with, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ of God, and we are able to now come to that conclusion definitively, which means you can come to that conclusion definitively. You have had enough evidence through the book of Luke up until this point to definitively make that clear and understand that and embrace that. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the son of God. He's the savior. And as we've journeyed through Luke, this has already been established, stated in various ways, been revealed by testimony after testimony. People have asked over and over again, who then is this that can? And he shows his divine work. We've seen he's been believed in, especially by the apostles. So he Here, Luke, in this part of the story, records this section in the biography of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, the book of Luke is. It's also the longest gospel and contains the most words out of any of the gospels. So walking through this book is, and exposing its meaning verse by verse is a big and beautiful task. But here, Luke's intention is to record the part of the story that intentionally gives us the explicit and straightforward statement that Jesus is the Christ. There should be no other conclusion, and we can be sure of this without any any confusion. No more evidence is needed to determine that. It's made clear. It's been made plain. We are able to come to this conclusion, just as the apostles were to this point. So to see this, and as we continue on in this journey through the book of Luke, one verse at a time, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. At looking at this portion of scripture, seeing the explicit conclusion about Jesus, we are going to uncover two main points. We are only going to look at one of those main points today, and I feel led to show us only today the first point, which is the unbelief of the crowds prior to getting to Peter's confession, um, and, and kind of leave us at a cliffhanger of seeing the doubt and the unbelief of the crowds. But those two main points that we see in this part and next week's part will come in the, two for, in the form of two questions, and those two questions are simply the two questions that Jesus asks in this passage that we are reading. And so those two questions that Jesus asks in this passage are, who do the crowds say that I am? That's what we'll cover today. And then who do you say that I am? Speaking to the disciples. 
So that's how we will be moved through this passage to see the conclusion about who Jesus is through those two questions. And my hope is that you would look at these two questions and the, count, the context surrounding these two questions and that you would ask the same two questions for yourself. Who, do the crowd, who, who does the crowd, the world, say that Jesus is? And then who do you say? Jesus is. I hope that you make your way through those questions and ask them yourselves. I hope that as we make our way through this short text, that you would make your way to a place where those questions become posed to you. Who do the crowd say that Jesus is? And what implications does that have? And who do you say that Jesus is? And what implications does that have? So next week, we will see part two of this section of scripture. The whole section includes verses 18 through 22. And as today we will cover 18 and 19 and next week verses 20 through 22, this week we'll have sort of a cliffhanger looking fully at the crowd's rejection and leaving with bad news. And next week we will see Jesus's declared uh, messiahship by Peter and then some of those implications. Uh, The implications include what the messiah then must suffer. If he is the messiah, what comes along with that? What must he suffer? from the crowds who are actually rejecting him? And what is he to do in the future to fulfill his work as the Messiah to save sinners? As he heads to Jerusalem, in essence, what does it more fully mean for him to be the Messiah? We're gonna look at that next week. But today, we stop with this first question and the first answer. What do the crowds believe about Jesus? And generally, what does today's world believe about Jesus. I especially feel led to leave us here with this bad news in light of embracing the problems that we see in our world today, which ultimately result from sin and not embracing Jesus as the Messiah. We can live in this for a moment to to feel the pain and the sorrow of a world that does not embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And then next week, we will look at the good news. We will look at what the apostles believe about Jesus. And so we will look at also what the, G- what the Messiah has done to finalize our salvation. And so to turn the question to you and ask, what do you believe about Jesus? will in essence be the most important question that you could ask of your life. And so we see Jesus even posing this question to us. And so I pray, more than even asking those two questions yourself, I pray that you would answer as Peter does, that Jesus is God's Christ. Jesus is God's Christ. What does that mean? What's the definition of the Christ? We're going to talk about all of that next week. But today, we want to see that what is revealed about Christ so far has been rejected. And that I pray that you would answer like Peter. Jesus is God's Christ. That God would reveal this to you. That you wouldn't be impacted by what the world says, by what flesh and blood says, but why, or, or by, even by how you feel. But that the word of God would be the truth in your life that would reveal the answer to the simple question, who is Jesus? Not any other outside sources that you wouldn't believe other people because of 
of the masses, but that you would, without any confusion, come to the simple truth, the foundational truth of the identity of Jesus Christ. And I pray that this truth would be the sure and stable foundation, the truth of your life that secures your hope and your joy and your salvation, so that with the Apostle Paul, you can say, I am not ashamed, for I know I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced. I pray that you would be that convinced like Paul, like Peter, about who Jesus is, so that if there's any other confusion in your life, this would be the one stable factor that you're sure of. I pray that you would believe it with perfect clarity, and that this one main thing would be the foundation of your life, that Jesus is God's Christ. And so let's pray to this end. Let's pray, and then let's look and read Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, and then let's look at Jesus's two questions, and today talk about one. We're going to expose verses 18 and 19. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we pray that you would expose your word to us, that we would behold it, and that we would see the response of the crowds as you, Jesus, ask the question about what they believe. And we pray that we would see the ultimate answer of Peter, which is the main point and the truth that we should embrace, that you are the Christ of God. And we know that you are God's Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who has come to pay for our sins. I pray, God, that we, like the apostles, would come to that conclusion based upon the evidence of your ministry thus far, specifically in Galilee. They have seen it, they've witnessed it, and they've been convinced, they believe, and are saved. And we too can see it from what we have learned thus far in Luke, based upon the evidence, based upon your ministry, based upon your teaching, based upon your miracles, based upon your healing. Thus far, we can be convinced that you are the Messiah. I pray that we would not find ourselves among the crowd. But I do pray that today we would see the sorrow and we would feel the sorrow of those who have rejected you as Messiah. And even in light of us looking at our world and the state that it is in, in many different ways, and the confusion that we have mentioned, God, I pray that we would understand and our hearts would break that the reasoning for this is sin, and the rejection of you as Messiah. I pray that we would, our, our hearts would break, that we would repent, but that we would also share and seek to minister to people who do not believe. We pray for your grace in this as we read and unfold the, the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter nine, verses 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, 
be raised. This is incredible. And as we walk through this and make our way to the two questions, and specifically today to the first question, what we should know as we begin in verse 18 is that from the time of the feeding of the 5,000 until now, Luke has jumped a, a significant amount of time. The Holy Spirit didn't lead Luke to write in a comprehensive linear chronology, but he skipped over some portions of this time frame intentionally on purpose as to uh, show us the truths of this portion of scripture and how it's connected to what he has shown us so far. And so he's intentionally not included some time. You can find those passages that sit in between the feeding of the 5,000 and this passage in verse 18. You can find those intervening passages in Mark chapter 6 verses 45 through chapter 8, verse 26. And you can find them also in Matthew in chapter 14, verse 22 through 16, verse 12. And we know that none of the gospels record everything. Actually, John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So this is intentional. And why Luke has done this is because now this makes a very fitting sequence for us to see this particular point, that this is a culmination of Jesus's Galilean ministry. And we can come to the conclusion at this point that he is the Christ. And so this is a really fitting sequence because those intervening passages that you can find in Matthew and Mark, in those passages, eventually Jesus will make his way back across Galilee, which is what we are finishing here, the ministry of Galilee. And so now what Luke is doing is simply bringing the Galilean ministry to a close. And he's bringing this in such a way that culminates Jesus's time in Galilee and is fitting because it culminates with the explicit statement of the conclusion that we should come to at this point. The conclusion that the disciples came to at this point, which is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus spent his first portion and period of ministry, the first phase of ministry, um, more more than anything else, showing the people who he is as the Christ, as the Messiah. So this point right now is after the largest miracle to date, the feeding of the 20 to 25,000 people, which on that same day, Jesus still was healing and doing many more miracles. So this is a firework display, so to speak, of the culmination of Jesus's phase of ministry in Galilee. And he has shown more than anything else, giving testimony and establishing who he is as the Messiah. And so before the next phase, which will consist of more explicit teaching, and then the next phase of heading into Jerusalem and being crucified, Peter uh, makes the explicit statement about who Jesus is. So this explicit statement by Peter about who Jesus is, is the close of the chapter of Galilee, which again, it seems to be Jesus's main objective to show us initially, establish initially who he is in his ministry. And so now Peter says it clearly to close this chapter. And this is also perfect because really since chapter eight, verse 25, Jesus has been showing us very straightforward and very powerful evidence that proves 
that he is the Messiah in such a way that people have explicitly and fittingly asked the question, who is this? Which is the right question because this is Jesus's main point to show that he's the Messiah. And so this is Jesus's main objective. Now we have seen that since chapter eight, verse 25, and that lapse from then till now is consisted of the calming of the waves where the apostles asked, who then is this? And most recently, Herod, who is asked, who then is this? So again, the main point of this so far has been, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the anointed one? Is he the son of God? And this portion of the ministry in Galilee is culminating with the explicit statement that he is. So as John writes that this is the purpose of all the gospels, we see this in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. That is the the main point of all of the gospels and all of Luke, this specific time in Galilee, we have seen this evidence greatly. So those questions are being asked asked and Jesus is intending to answer. And as again, this main uh, objective is being shown to us specifically from his first phase of ministry. Peter's confession helps us come to this conclusion explicitly. So you wouldn't have to ask the question ambiguously of who Jesus is and how do I know that he is the Christ? Peter has shown us this evidence so far has given us this conclusion. The conclusion we can come to at this point is that Multitudes are rejecting him, and yet by the evidence, the disciples are receiving him. So this is perfect placement by Luke. And we know that this is the culmination of his Galilean ministry, the climax, because this point, this section ends with simply giving us this truth. The apostles have already believed this. They've repeated this evidence over and over again. The crowds have already rejected him. We've seen that evidence over and over again. This simply here is just making things explicit. Luke is just making those two factors explicit. The crowds are rejecting, the disciples are believing. And now this is the end of his time in ministry in Galilee, but we have gone through a large portion of time of his ministry. This is now two and a half years into his ministry since Jesus called the first disciples around him. It took him two and a half years to ask them this question explicitly. And he is only about eight or nine months from his crucifixion. So Luke gives us two and a half years rather quickly, and then we'll spend the rest of the time in Luke in Jesus's last eight or nine months, which is past with explicit teaching and of course his crucifixion. But this is the time in which we come to the conclusion that he is the Christ. So beginning in verse 18, if you look at these verses with me, Luke writes, now it happened. That's how this section starts. It says, now it happened. And this serves as a transition statement. Again, since he has jumped over a significant portion of time. And Luke writes, now Now it happened, what happened? That he was praying alone. So before we get to the questions, we see the the situation surrounding this time. Jesus is by himself praying to his father. This is an intimate time. We're going to see that the disciples are there, that there's no one else around. And so Jesus is intentionally making this time intimate with them. But first, Luke writes that Jesus is alone and he's praying. 
Jesus is in prayer to his father. He's dependent upon his father. He's seeking the face of his father. He's communing with his father. He's requesting from his father. He's casting his cares upon his father. He's seeking direction from his father. And Luke will give us seven accounts, seven times in his gospel of we see uh, of seeing Jesus unashamedly go by himself alone to be with his father. This is a beautiful picture that we can see. And and even to think more deeply about this, can you imagine what was said? We know from John chapter 17, what Jesus is saying in his prayers, because it's a picture of him praying the high priestly prayer. And also he teaches us in Luke chapter 11, how we should pray. But this is a beautiful picture that we would see Jesus spending time with his heavenly father. And we should to follow Christ's example to be alone with our heavenly father as well. But next Luke says back in our text, verse 18 of Luke chapter nine, that the disciples were also with him. So he was alone, but the disciples were with him. I can imagine little children standing around watching as, as even my own children stand around sometimes and catch me with my eyes closed, talking to God. Jesus was alone with his heavenly father, but they were nearby. And now Luke, Matthew and Mark tell us that this all took place at the foot of Mount Hermon. And so what we can know from some of this geographical information is that this was really isolated. This was in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. This is a place where Philip the Tetrarch, who we talked about a few weeks ago, he named this place after himself. He wanted to name it Caesarea, but there was a Caesarea in the south as well. And so to, uh, to identify this place specifically, he put his name into it as well with all the pride that goes along with that. Caesarea was named by the Caesar after himself. And now he names Caesarea Philippi, a different place with his name involved. So it's distinguishing it from the Southern Caesarea and it's named Caesarea Philippi. And now this is 25 miles about from the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus and his disciples have intentionally withdrawn from Galilee as this Galilean ministry comes to a close where Jesus has shown so far that he is the Christ The crowds have rejected, the apostles have believed, and now he's gone to ask them a specific question, two specific questions. And Jesus and the disciples withdraw from under Herod's dominion. They went into this heathen territory. It's heathen because it's on the border, the northern border of Israel. And so you see this uh, involvement of pagan practice and Gentile world combined with the Israelite religion. They worship there a God called Pan. And this is where there was very little there in this place, in this region. It's about 40 miles southwest from Damascus. You know that place. You're familiar with that place from Paul's uh, stories. And again, this is the very most northern part of Israel. And so Jesus is withdrawing from the crowds, from his Galilean ministry, from underneath Herod. And he's spending time to quietly talk with his father and with the disciples. And then this leads us to the questions that Jesus 
asks. So the two questions of Jesus. And we're going to look at the first one only today, but keep in mind there are two. And this is a sort of final exam for the disciples. Also to make explicit the summary of his ministry so far from Galilee that the crowds have rejected and yet he is and should be believed in as the Christ of God, God's Christ. And so to show us this, we can, uh, to show us what we can conclude from his ministry, Jesus is asking these two questions. Now, he's doing this like a shepherd to continue to shape his disciples' hearts, but they've already come to this conclusion. They know, and we are to see these two questions explicitly, and they show us what the crowds have believed after they have heard about him and not embraced him as Messiah. And we see what the disciples believe based upon the sufficient evidence of his ministry. And so the father is working in their hearts to reveal this. Now, the first question is asked in verse 18, and it says, after we see the, the praying alone by Jesus, the disciples being with him, it's Luke writes, and he asked, who do the crowds say that I am? This is the first and only question we're going to cover today. And it's a sad one. It's a sad answer to this question. We see it in, the, in verse 18. When Luke writes, who do the crowds say that I am? He's literally asking, Jesus is asking, who do the multitudes say that I am? Who do the masses say that I am? And the answer they give is in line with what we got a glimpse into through the story of Herod. It's the same answers. Verse 19, they answered, John the Baptist which was the main answer. And this is why Herod was so afraid because this was the main answer and he didn't want to find out genuinely who Jesus is. He didn't want to find out the answer of Jesus's identity. He asked this question for ingenuine reasons to make sure that it wasn't John the Baptist because he had killed John the Baptist. And so this is the main answer that people are believing and they're okay with Jesus being a religious figure, a forerunner of the Messiah, but they are not okay with him being the Messiah. That's what we are seeing here. And Jesus is asking Peter or uh, disciples, do you understand this? Have you seen what the masses are saying and have heard what they are saying? Verse 19, he goes on. If you look at this, it says, they answered John the Baptist, but they also answered, others say Elijah and others believed that Jesus was Elijah, who was again supposed to be the forerunner of the Messiah, which we have determined was John the Baptist, a type of Elijah. So they are, they are okay with him being a forerunner. They are not okay with him being the Christ, which we showed where this prophecy comes from a few weeks ago. And so they are getting this from their scriptures. But verse 19, what we also see is that others say that he is one of the prophets. It says this, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen, which again, we showed the prophecy of a few weeks ago. So this is right in line with what we already know from what Luke has given us. This information about what the crowds, what the multitudes believe about Jesus. Now, this is a sad picture. Because as we look at this, we see that although the same evidence was given to the disciples and to the multitudes, the multitudes have rejected him being the anointed one, the savior, 
the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, who has come to reconcile them to God, forgive them of their sins, and call them into his kingdom. They have the same evidence, and yet they have rejected him. And that's what will lead ultimately to their permanent rejection. They're going to keep him around still for a little while, the crowds, even though they've rejected him. But they will ultimately crucify him. And unbelief ultimately leads to a permanent rejection and destruction. We know that this wasn't a genuine confusion by the people. This was willful ignorance. They had plenty of evidence. And Luke here is showing us that in light of this sufficient evidence from Jesus's first phase of ministry to conclude that he's God's Christ, which is why Peter believes these people too should, should also believe. Jesus sought to establish this. Prior to what we see in chapter 10, following this chapter and, and even on into the, into the uh, later chapters of Luke where Jesus will be crucified, Jesus will show that he's the Messiah but he has firmly established it in these first nine chapters. Even though we have seen this testimony of his identity, the crowds could come to the conclusion like Peter did, and that yet they don't. Herod and the multitudes and the Pharisees do not. Why? Because they didn't want it to be true. Jesus was a threat. They had miracles. They had healings. They had teachings. They had the works. They have the same as the disciples. And so the account is written to show us that the crowds have still rejected him. Now, you and I also have this same account. You and I, from seeing the written word of God in the life of Jesus, specifically of his Galilean ministry, have the same evidence that these people had to determine that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, this is why Luke has written his gospel, to give us this same evidence. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, this is Luke writing, who have followed all these things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you too may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so we can have certainty just like the apostles about who Jesus is. And yet the crowds who had the same evidence rejected him. They didn't believe. They didn't want to believe. They were okay with Jesus being a religious figure, but not the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, Jesus is asking here specifically, what is popular opinion? What does the world say? Who does the world say that I am? Who do the crowds that actually are following me, hundreds and thousands of people who look like they're following me, and they come out every day and every week to see me. But these are the uncommitted ones, the socially and religiously and politically correct, religious in many ways, and yet rejecting the truth about me. Who do they say that I am? These are the ones who have heard my message. Who do they say that I am? And it's not God's Christ. It's a religious one to follow, sure, a forerunner of the Messiah, okay. But even though we don't see evidence of them contradicting or debating his great miracles, they couldn't debate those. Those were evident. They still did not believe because they didn't want to for various reasons. 
And even in their motions, even though they were religious and they followed him, in their hearts they did not believe. The crowds did not embrace Jesus as the one they needed to forgive them of their sins. They didn't look to him for eternal life. They didn't depend on him fully because their awareness of their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness. And I love this because when Jesus asks here, he's asking this specific question in a very particular way. And Matthew, he records it like this. Who do people say the son of man is? is he's declaring who he is when asking this question about what the crowd say this should have been already established he's using a title when he says the son of man he's using a title for himself that he did often and he loved to do because it identified him not only as human but also as the messiah specifically spoken by daniel so he's asserting who do the multitudes say that i the promised son of man the messiah am and the point here is that even though they've been given enough evidence and they should believe they don't the multitudes are going to keep them around a little longer eventually shouting on the roads of jerusalem but they will finally reject him permanently and wholly and have him crucified. And so I want to tell you, church, that this is the issue of our world. This is the evidence here that even with sufficient gospel preaching, there should always be expected rejection of Jesus. And that sin and that rejection will lead ultimately to destruction, and then into eternity apart from God. And I want to encourage you in the way of repentance and belief, wherever you're at in this, if you find yourself in the category of this crowd, if you resonate with the crowd's answers and the reasons of the answers, holding on to a self-righteousness or caring more about the world and the recognition of man or the threat of Jesus or what you want him to be, rather than believing in him based upon the evidence that we have seen in his word, you can repent, you can believe, and you can lead others to do the same and watch his kingdom come on earth. I don't want to oversimplify it, but it is that simple. Jesus has shown himself to be the Christ and Peter has seen that evidence and believed. And this is very simple. He is showing us too that he has given us enough evidence for us to declare that he is God's Christ, anointed one, Messiah, coming savior to forgive us of our sins. You can simply repent. You can turn away from your sin. You can turn to Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins and be saved. The offer of forgiveness for sin and escape from perishing is still offered to us if we would repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. If you still have breath in your lungs, the offer of forgiveness for sin and escape from the terrible perishing is still offered to you. If you would repent and believe, do you want it? That's the question.
Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is rest from working for your salvation. Peter says in Acts chapter three, repent therefore and turn back that your sins might be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Christ gives himself to us freely if we want him and his offer of salvation. I pray that you wouldn't find yourself among the crowds, but I pray that we would become aware that this is the result of unbelief, that they have rejected him, and this will lead to destruction. And I pray also for you Christians. I want to take a moment, although this picture of the crowd is a picture of the rejection of salvation, I also feel led to say maybe you believed in him but functionally denied him recently in your obedience. I want to say repentance and forgiveness is still offered to you. Maybe you resonate in regards of the rejection and yet uh, you have lived like this although you have ultimately believed in Christ as Messiah. As I heard a pastor say recently, today is the beginning of the rest of your life and it's foolish to figure out if you can be forgiven. You can be. Paul says in Philippians 3, you can forget what lies behind and press on towards what lies ahead. You can throw yourself fully into this life and expect future grace. The question is, do you want it? Christ gives himself to us in proportion to how much we want his refreshment and his work. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And that's what the crowds should have done here. They should have repented and believed, received forgiveness and sought after Jesus with all of their hearts, which we will see next week that the disciples will do. So the first question Jesus asks is, who do the multitudes say that I am? And I pray that you wouldn't be among them and that you wouldn't listen to the world and what the world says. Matthew chapter seven actually says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Those are the multitudes. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I pray that you would be like the disciples and that you would receive the Christ. John 2 says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. The crowds, the multitudes are passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I pray that you would see the evidence in front of you and that just like the disciples, um, even the crowds had seen this evidence from the word of God, that you would not reject Jesus like the crowds, but that you would believe in Jesus as God's Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come and as we just sit in this for a moment and understand the magnitude of the rejection of Jesus, that the multitudes, the crowds, the world, that we see that is surrounding Jesus in this picture as he's finished his Galilean ministry is rejection. We see that the crowds are rejecting. And I pray, God, that we would find ourselves in a place willing to repent, that even if we resonate more with the crowds, that we would understand we have opportunity to repent and trust in you, Jesus. I pray in many ways that we would 
see this multitudes as, as we see the world around us and the confusion and the sorrow. I pray that we would understand that the main way that we can bring about change and peace is to ultimately bring the gospel to the world and encourage the crowds, the multitudes, to see the word of God, the evidence of your ministry, Jesus, and not to reject it, but to believe in it and be saved. I pray, God, that you would help any of us who are listening to this message, who have functionally lived in a place of rejection, that we would too repent and believe and trust and move forward, forgetting what lies behind and striving and pressing on towards what lies ahead. I pray, God, that as we look forward to next week and seeing Peter confess you as the Christ, understanding the full extent of what that means and understanding the salvation that you bring and yet the suffering that you as Messiah must endure, I pray, God, that we would have firmly established you as Messiah and that we would be saved because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.